Father, thank you that no matter what we're walking in here with today, no matter which ways we've stumbled and fallen this week or throughout our life, that those words that we just sang remain true. That we can come to you tonight boldly to the throne of grace because the blood of Christ our Savior avails for us. We pray now, Lord God, that you'd speak to us through your imperfect servant. His sins are many, and yet you have promised that you can speak through sinners. And so I ask that you do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Good evening, everyone. Good to have you here tonight uh, on this uh, perfect summer day. Uh, so our text tonight... Uh, is we're continuing just going through the lectionary in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And our, our text tonight comes out of Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. The words will be on the screen for you to, to follow along with if you'd like. And it reads like this. When the days drew near for him, him being Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. End the reading. Well, our, our text tonight, uh, if you were listening, is a bit challenging. Uh, it really is, though, if you narrow it all down, like you want to know, like, what is it about? Well, it's, it's really about being, staying focused on the ultimate goal, on the prize, on what you're called to do, specifically what Jesus is called to do. It's about him being focused on his goal. And I say that because of the words of the very first verse in our passage. Luke tells us, quote, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. He, the, the idea is that he pointed it in that direction and would not let anything get in the way of going there. And what is he going there to do? He's going there 
to be taken up. That is the time prepared by God before the foundation of the world for his son to sacrifice himself on the cross that's been determined from eternity past. Jesus is resolute, firm, and focused on getting to that. He is firm and focused on getting to the cross. So the moment that he would suffer for humanity. He will not be distracted. <clears throat> he will not be distracted. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said of his followers, especially of his followers even today, who I think we could title our age the age of distraction. I mean, I can't go more than a few minutes without pulling out my phone. Or without looking, especially right now, like NBA free agency starts tonight. I'm an NBA fan. Like during fellowship hour afterwards, it starts at 6 p.m. You're going to see me every once in a while, like looking to see who's going where. I'm really hoping Kawhi goes to the Lakers, but you know, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I'm not, I don't have my hopes up. But we are constantly distracted by a hundred thousand things, and it, it, the world's designed that way. I mean, there's a reason that every Netflix show after, at the end immediately says, next episode coming up in five, four, three, two. Well, I guess I can't help it. I might as well just watch another one. And on and on it goes. There's so many things to be distracted by that we don't even know how not to be distracted, how not to be focused. And as much as we like to sort of you know, pick on modern culture for all of its problems, the reality is, even back in Jesus' day, without all the contraptions, without all the technology, his disciples got distracted too. And, and if you boil it all down, I think what you'll find in this text is that they get distracted by things that we too get distracted by even still today. Just, just in a little different way. Just in a little different way. So I want to list for you some of the distractions I see in this text and, and sort of pull out from there. Uh, the contrast between, of course, Jesus and those who would follow him. First of all, the disciples are distracted by opposition, by enemies, by people that are coming up against them. I read a story once about Richard Petty's first win at the Daytona 500. I don't know if any of you pay attention to racing at all. I typically don't, but he was one of the big names for quite some time. And uh, the way he won his first race is he was going into the last lap. He was in third place and he really didn't look to have any chance of winning. When the second place driver decided to make a move for first place, and this caused the first car to drift inside and force the challenger onto the infield grass, slightly out of control. Uh, and so the first place driver, then full of a desire for revenge and wrath, pulled his car back onto the track, caught up with the new leader, and forced him into the outside wall, both vehicles coming to a screeching halt, the two drivers jumping out and starting to literally fistfight each other, while the third place Richard Petty cruised to victory. You see, the, the first two got distracted by their enemy, got distracted by their opponent. Jesus and his disciples first stop on their way to Jerusalem, apparently, it seems from this passage, is this place called Samaria. Now, if you know anything about Samaria and Judea, Samaria was what once was the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, they had been 
in, especially in Jerusalem's mind, polluted by false doctrine and false ideology, and they were not, no longer seen as true to Judaism by those in the southern Judea area. And so there was a lot of conflict between the Jews in Judea and the, what were, they were, they were referenced uh, disparagingly as the half-breed Samaritans because they had intermingled with Assyrians during invasion. Anyhow, there's a lot of tension there. The disciples, Jesus is about to go through Samaria, and the Samaritans don't want him there. They, we don't know much as to the reason why, except that they know he's headed to Jerusalem, and it was not typical for somebody headed to Jerusalem to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, you would, if you were a Jew from Jerusalem, you would go the long way, all the way around, just to avoid the you know, messy Samaritans. And so the Samaritans are like, no, I'm not letting you in. I don't want you to be here. You can go ahead and do your thing. And you got to love John and James. It seems like just, isn't it just a tad of an overreaction? Their first response after hearing Samaria doesn't want Jesus to walk through is, um, Lord, I've got an idea. How about you call down lightning on this place and burn it to death? That's their idea. What would you think? I've got an idea. What would you think about mass slaughter of this whole nation of people? I think that sounds like a reasonable way to deal with this problem. And, uh, and you know what? Here's the deal. It wasn't out of nowhere that they had this idea. I mean, you do see stuff like this in the Old Testament. You see it with, like, the prophet Elijah who is battling these false prophets of Baal. And God is able to, like, bring fire down against these enemies. And so James and John, maybe they're just doing reasoning and they're like, Jesus says he's Messiah. He probably has the same power as Elijah. Burn him! So they, I think, genuinely were surprised when Jesus rebuked them. He says in another account of this, you don't know what spirit you are of. The spirit of... Jesus is one of reconciliation and redemption that even as he's rejected by the Samaritans, still longs to embrace the Samaritans, still longs to embrace his opponents. Remember, it was Jesus who said to us that the way we are to live as Christians is to, quote, love our enemies. And so rather than being distracted by trying to beat our opponents or trying to beat those that we see as against us, Jesus says, no, I want you to embrace them, walk the extra mile with them, do this for them. And that's not what we see a lot of Christians being willing to do. I struggle with that myself. I think we see it in our politics right now. I think we see this sort of, you're not just wrong on an issue, you're evil. You're my enemy. And so we have to fight. Lord, will you call down fire on those people? Jesus says, no. That's not, that's not what it means to follow me. Don't get distracted by that. Secondly, 
You see the disciples getting distracted by comfort and security in this passage. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I think, I think most pastors, if you were to ask most pastors, what would be the ideal thing that your people in your church could say to you as a result of your ministry, I think this phrase might be one of them. If my people were just willing to say and mean with all of their heart that they will follow Jesus wherever he leads them, that would be the greatest possible outcome. I just want my people to follow Jesus wherever he says to go. But you know what? Based on Jesus' response, which we'll read in just a second again, and parables like the parable of the sower or the soils where it, it talks about fast-growing, thorny uh, responses that don't have any rooting to them. They seem excited at first about everything. I will follow you wherever you go! But then drift away because they don't not rooted. After 12 years of ministry, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you, I, get, I actually get a little nervous when somebody makes big de declarations about what they're going to do for Jesus. I get, I get a little nervous. And not, not, not that I don't encourage, I want, people, I want people to want to follow Jesus wherever he leads them, but I also just seen enough of the time that sometimes there's a lot of zeal, but there's not a lot of knowledge in the zeal. And that knowledge only comes over time. Paul talks about this. That both of those things need to be there. And I think that's why Jesus says what he says to this guy. Because it, at, at, on face value, I mean, the guy's like, I'm, I'm here, I'm here with you, I want to go. And Jesus just seems to put out the flames. It's like he puts water on the fire. He says, okay. Foxes have holes in the ground, birds of the air have nests, but if you want to follow me, you're going to be homeless. You cool with that? You can come. You can come, but you're not going to be comfortable. It's not going to, it's not always going to be nice. It's not, I mean, people might throw rocks at you and stuff, man. I mean, people don't always like me wherever I go. Are you sure you're cool with that? The Apostle Paul knew a little bit about what, you know, the Christian life might entail. You know, so often you see on TV that the, the TV preachers, not all of them, some of them are good, but a lot of TV preachers, the way they preach, they preach a message promising you all sorts of goodies if you follow Jesus. Like, you follow Jesus rightly, and you'll get rich, and you'll be prosperous, and you'll be happy, and everything will be just fine. And then you have the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 who describes what that prosperous life looks like. Quote, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. It means he was beaten with a whip with glass and rock on it 39 times at one time, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Literally they were throwing rocks at him and almost killed him. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea. What a crazy life this guy had. And he goes on, he goes on, he goes on. For all the things that he's experienced, and they weren't easy, and they weren't nice, and they weren't comfortable. 
Jesus says, you know, if you're, if you're coming to me, you know, I mean, I think Jesus, I think Jesus here is saying, if you're coming to me for that reason, let's put some cold water on that. I'm not, I'm not here to just, you know, kind of pat your pillow and make you more comfy. And so they're distracted by the need for comfort. I am too. Oh my gosh, I am so distracted by that. Ugh, I, I mean, it, even if it gets like above 72 degrees in here, I'm like, ah, you know, all irritable. I had to drive into the city uh, a, a number of, in and out of the city a number of times the last few days for uh, some projects I was working on and the car I was in didn't have air conditioning and it was pretty humid and sticky, you know, the last couple of days. And so it was like 86 and I'm just sitting there in the car like, Ugh, just like in a bad mood, you know, and I'm, this is, I'm doing this, big, by the way, for church, like I'm doing church stuff, and I'm like, eh, in a bad mood, because <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, just like a little sweaty, I'm like, eh, <laughs> and Jesus is like, listen, I, I, it, yes, comfort can be a real distraction, and just know, like, I'm not promising you comfort, I'm not, it's, it's not, it's not part of the package that comes with me, We can get distracted by our culture's expectations. That's what happened to the disciples and, and others around them. To another, Jesus says, so this time, Jesus looks at somebody and says, hey, why don't you follow me? Why don't you come? And this guy says this, okay, Lord, sounds good. I'm there. But first, I just got to do this thing. I got to bury my father. Now, uh, this was a cultural expectation, and understandably so. Nothing took precedence over showing the honor and respect that you owed your father at his passing, at his death. You must be there to bury him. Most likely, this man's father was not dead yet. He probably was sick, and this man didn't want to leave before his father died and then not give him a proper burial. It was completely understandable. And it would have been seen as an ideal reason to stay. So it is again with a little shock that we hear Jesus' response. Let's just be honest, it just sounds cold. Let the dead bury their own dead. Yes. Man. Maybe a little more tactful. Now, is Jesus saying that we can't bury our relatives? No, he's not. No. We have to read between the lines and understand the cultural expectations here. But, but what he is saying is that nothing, nothing is supposed to come in the way of following Jesus. That there's not supposed to be any excuses, no matter how culturally acceptable they may be. Your mind must be focused on and centered on the kingdom of God. That's, that's at least what... It's supposed to be like. But oh man. Maybe most especially in the culture we're in here. Cultural expectations can be a huge distraction for us. I mean, we want to fit in. We want to have jobs. We don't want to isolate ourselves by the ways that Jesus teaches us to live differently than, than others around us. I mean, this guy, if he left right then to go follow Jesus in his hometown, would have been seen as a real jerk. 
It's just true. Like he would have been seen as a dishonorable son. It wouldn't have been true, but it would have been seen like that. I mean, he was, it's understandable why he said, just hold on. And Jesus says, no, come now. And I think part of the reason he says that is because he knows, he knows we are frail and that we are people that in the moment have good intentions to follow through with something. But then a day later, when we get back into the routine of life, they go, eh, you know, it's kind of caught up in the moment there. Eh, I don't think I'll go on that journey with Jesus just yet. After I told that other dude that he doesn't have a place to lay his head and I want some air conditioning. We, we can get distracted by our family connections and relationships. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. Just let me first say farewell to my home. I mean, how reasonable is that? <laughs> He's distracted for such a good thing. And there's certainly nothing wrong with saying goodbye to the family. That is, unless the family takes precedence over Jesus. And Jesus, so Jesus says to him, now, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, if one was plowing, they had to plow in a straight line. If you dared look back while plowing, then what happens? No longer a straight line. And the work would be a mess. This man says he wants to follow Jesus, but he's still distracted by something, the love of his family. Again, this is not a bad thing. This is not, I mean, loving family is wonderful. We're commanded to do it in other parts of Scripture. And so it can't be, I mean, if Jesus commands us, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And all the other family dynamics come from that. It can't be that Jesus is saying, like, ah, they don't mean anything. Who cares about them? But it is a problem if it's used as an excuse to keep us from walking with Jesus. What a high calling Jesus places on those who would be his followers. We're to be focused and determined, purposed in our minds and hearts and souls to follow Jesus above all else. We're not to be distracted by anything, just focused like he is. Ah, but here's the deal if we're honest, right? If we're honest, we've turned back. If we're honest, I mean, I... I well, I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to assume anything about you. There's been way too many times that I've been plowing that field, following that way, and I'm turning back. Matter of fact, not just once, not just twice, every single day, in some way or another, I'm turning back. I'm distracted. I'm distracted by my enemies, by those who make me upset. I can become focused on them and not feel like loving them at all. My comfort and my security come first and therefore distract me from following him. 
My desire to fit in with the culture is so strong that I find myself distracted from following Jesus where he's called me to go and to say what he's called me to say. When I used to go into the cafes every single day here, it's, it's more rare that I do that now, but I used to go every single day and there to talk to people and there would be days where I would just sit there unable to get up and talk to anybody even though I knew God was calling me to do it because I just was too intimidated. I just felt too nervous about doing it. I didn't want to deal with the rejection of it. And my family means so much to me that if I'm honest, I'll say that I, I do value them often more than I value Jesus and I am distracted. And so it seems that we have all Showing ourselves and our in and of ourselves not fit for the kingdom of God. But there is one that qualifies. Jesus himself never got distracted from the mission. Remember Luke's words at the beginning of the passage. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where he is headed. This is where he will go to die, to pay for the sins of the world. He has set his face toward there. There is no stopping him. He is determined that he will die the death that you and I deserve for being so distracted from following him the way we ought to. He is determined to make it so that we will be forgiven for our many sins and stumbles along the way as we follow him. He did not look back while plowing his way straight to the cross. So then the book of Hebrews says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that, Jesus? Well, bear down. No, he says, the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what it all comes down to. If you walk out of here thinking, it's on me to plow my way forward in this walk with Jesus, you will find yourself constantly, constantly defeated. But if you find yourself saying, if Jesus was able to get to the cross because he set his face toward there and he was able to do all that he decided to do before him, including rise from the dead, then I believe that Jesus has the power to carry me that way too on his shoulders and plow the way for me. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. You want to follow him? Get on him. Let him carry you. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem for you and for me to be forgiven. And now he promises 
Remember what the author of Hebrews says. He's the founder and the perfecter of your faith. He's not leaving it up to you. He promises he's going to plow your way home too. And that's good news for us. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare to receive his good news and his body and blood for us given at the table. Father, we ask and pray that you would give us the strength to come to you and lay down our burdens. To instead of depending on ourselves and our own efforts and looking to our resources to follow you, for us just to admit we aren't where we should be, but we know that you are where you should be and that you will carry us to the end. Help us, Father, become dependent like little children. As we come to you with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.